0: Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I'm delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Henry Parkman, Professor of Medicine at the Temple University School of Medicine in Philadelphia, who was also past President of the American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Society. Today we'll discuss his recent article, Cannabinoid Use in Patients with Gastroparesis and Related Disorders Prevalence and Benefit, which was published online in the American Journal of Gastroenterology earlier this year. Dr. Parkman, welcome. Let's begin by setting the stage for our listeners. How common is gastroparesis and what treatment options do we have for our patients?
1: Well, uh, thanks, Brian. Um... Gastroparesis, at least epidemiologic studies, when you define gastroparesis as delayed gastric emptying, uh, studies from Rochester, Minnesota have suggested it's somewhat uncommon, uh, less than 1% of the population. But if you take into account the symptoms of gastroparesis, symptoms like nausea, vomiting, early satiety, postprandial fullness and go out in the community and try to see who might have the symptoms of gastroparesis, uh, you can get a prevalence rate of about uh, 3% or so. In our studies, um, when we looked at hospital discharges for gastroparesis, we found that there's been an escalation or an increase in the hospital discharge rate of patients with gastroparesis. So we think it's being recognized more often. Now I'm being referred patients that come to me saying that they have uh, gastroparesis. Uh, We often get a uh, dedicated gastric emptying test uh, to try to confirm the diagnosis. And this goes into the complexity of the disorder because a lot of times it's delayed, but some people can have typical symptoms Uh, With normal gastric emptying, so it's somewhat difficult both for the patients and because of their symptoms as well as trying to make the diagnosis.
0: That's a great review, and we briefly touched on treatment. And there's just one FDA-approved treatment for gastroparesis.
1: Yeah, well, metoclopramide, we keep on coming back to this drug. We try to go away from it. You know, metoclopramide or Regulin has been available for about 25 years. I think I learned about that in uh, my fellowship program uh, a long time ago. And we try to get away with it with Sysapride and other medicines, but unfortunately, some of those medicines uh, got recalled. Uh, as you know, metoclopramide is approved for FDA use for about three months, and then you need to reassess the patient. So we need more treatment options. Uh, it's kind of an exciting time, actually, not only because of this article that we're discussing today, but there's uh, new, uh, new types of surgical treatments like the uh, G-pom or the pyloromyotomy in which patients might ultimately get sent to, to that sort of procedures trying to be worked out at present time. So we don't have a lot of medical therapies. At our center, we're an academic center. We have access to the use of domperidone with a uh, FDA investigator uh, new drug application. And so I sometimes prescribe that over metaclopamide. And now uh, I talk carefully about my patients and talk about other symptoms and see if they have things like constipation. If we want to treat the constipation, now there's a medicine available for chronic idiopathic constipation in the form of procalipride, a 5-HT4 receptor agonist.
0: Henry, that's great. That's very helpful. And as you help our listeners think about these treatment options, you mentioned in your article that many patients with gastroparesis are not satisfied with current therapies. What, why is that? Is that lack of efficacy, or is it an issue with cost or with side effects?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, I did a project, not this particular study, but I did this with the International Foundation of Functional GI Disorders where they did an online survey of gastroparesis patients, and a high number of the patients were dissatisfied with the uh, medications that were available because there weren't a lot. Uh, they found that their doctors might not be cognizant about the disorder, and uh, they, the patients remained symptomatic. It wasn't totally treating the full spectrum of their symptoms. As I said initially, the symptoms of gastroparesis are often nausea, vomiting, early satiety, postprandial fullness, and some patients have abdominal pain. So there's a a variety of different uh, symptoms that patients may have, and maybe some of the drugs we have that uh, are used off-label might only target one or two of the symptoms, whereas often the patients have a a uh, breadth of, of symptoms, such as both nausea and early satiety. Parenthetically, those are the two symptoms I like to make sure I capture in patients when I'm trying to make a diagnosis of uh, a they, they have both early satiety and nausea.
0: That's a great point, this multi-symptom complex can be so tricky to treat. So shifting gears just a little bit now, we recognize that cannabis is now available for medical use in 33 states and the District of Columbia and for recreational use in 10 states, and Illinois is likely to become the 11th state. Tell us about the active
1: ingredients in cannabis and how do they work? Sure. Well, there's two main chemicals in cannabis. One is THC or tetrahydrocannabinol and the other is CBD or cannabidiol. And both of these are active chemicals. And it's thought that these chemicals actually work through what's called the uh, endogenous cannabinoid system, which is actually present in in our bodies. And it takes advantage of these to mediate a number of effects, not only central effects that the uh, patients often are using it for for recreational uh, use, but also peripheral effects in the GI system. uh, And that's where uh, CBD might have its primary mode of action. But they work on specific receptors. Actually, THC works by binding to two of the cannabinoid receptors. Actually, there are only two cannabinoid receptors called CB1 and CB2.
0: So, Henry, that's a perfect segue because, really, uh, the pharmacology of these receptors is fascinating. Can you just speak to us a little bit? Uh, what data do we have in humans about how they might affect or improve symptoms in patients with gastroparesis?
1: Well, it, cannabinoids are known to have uh, anti-emetic effects. Uh, it's used for other sort of uh, nausea and vomiting instances, for instance, it's used by patients undergoing chemotherapy. It's thought that the anti-emetic effects are mediated by the CB1 receptors in particular that are located in the dorsal vagal complex of the brainstem and that the cannabinoids, particularly THC, binds to this to reduce nausea. And the interesting thing is there there are actually have been medicines that take into account. Marinol or uh, trinobinol is a synthetic form of THC, and that's approved for nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, primarily in the chemotherapy uh, situation, which some people have been using this uh, agent on an off-label basis uh, to try to improve appetite and reduce uh, nausea and vomiting. When people have looked at Cannabinoids, particularly THC, as well as uh, Marinol, it actually seems to have a uh, delirious effect or a negative effect on uh, stomach emptying, to actually slow uh, stomach emptying. Studies have been formed by Dr. Camilleri from Mayo Clinic on uh, Marinol, showing it can slow stomach emptying, but also slow colonic transit, uh, as well as Dr. McCallum did studies looking at THC to show that it uh, slows uh, stomach emptying. Nevertheless, it seems to be uh, many instances an anti agent, and then we're talking about our article in American Journal of Gastroenterology, I noticed that a lot of patients freely were telling me that, hey, they had to resort to uh, the use of marijuana. Some people were using medical marijuana, but mostly at the time when I was thinking about the study, it was a recreational marijuana that the patients were using specifically for their symptoms primarily of nausea and vomiting in the setting of their uh, gastroparesis symptoms.
0: So it sounds like, you know, I know you see so many patients with gastroparesis at Temple that when talking to your patients, you recognize that many of these patients were self-medicating with cannabis to try to improve their symptoms. Is that what really led to this study?
1: Yes, and I noticed that it was, uh, that the patients were telling me this, and I decided, hey, we should take a very systematic approach. So, in this particular study that's um, published in the American Journal of Gas Neurology, I asked consecutive patients that I was seeing about their use of marijuana or other cannabinoids, and I was able to uh, interview, um, close to 200 patients over, I believe a six month period of patients that were seeing me. I decided to specifically only ask Patients that were seeing, that I was seeing in follow up, because I thought at that time I would have a better physician patient relationship. I didn't want the patient to give me uh, negative answers or try to conceal things. I thought if I was seeing them follow up, they were truthful. And a number of them had been using or have, or were presently using cannabinoids. In fact, actively using cannabinoids was close to, uh, was about a third of the patients. So one out of every three patients. We're using this for, specifically for their symptoms of gastroparesis. And from the patient's viewpoint, they felt it was improving, and this might be through, uh, mediated through, again, the CB1 receptor to uh, reduce nausea and vomiting. A small percentage of the patients were saying that they were using it to try to increase their appetite. Now, when we looked at the patients, what sort of symptoms they were having compared to the patients not using it, we found that the patients using marijuana had a higher degree of nausea and vomiting. And on first glance, I interpreted this particular study that, hey, they're having worse symptoms and that's leading the, their drive to using exogenous marijuana to try to decrease this, their symptoms. As many people know, there's also another syndrome, cyclic vomiting syndrome and cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome that people can get if they're using uh, marijuana too frequently that they can actually using the marijuana can lead to cannabinoid uh, hyperemesis syndrome. So this takes a careful history I believe to try to dissect whether the patients are having symptoms of gastroparesis and or uh, symptoms from cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. I do that by looking at uh, their symptom pattern and also how it started at the onset of the disorder. Usually the symptom pattern for gastroparesis is they're having chronic symptoms, daily symptoms, whereas in cyclic vomiting syndrome, and in general, for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, they're having cyclic episodes where they can have severe symptoms for one or two days, and then might be uh, symptom-free for about a week or two, and the same pattern emerges. So you have to be careful to try to understand what, what you're dealing with, because in cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, one of the therapies, or the mainstay of therapies, try to have them stop the marijuana or other cannabinoids that they might be using. That's very helpful. And Henry, you mentioned
0: in this very nice article that patients who are using uh, cannabinoids appear to be a little bit younger and they also had higher GCSI or gastroparesis cardinal symptom index scores.
1: Yeah, I think that, in my opinion, I think that's what's leading them to using is that they're symptomatic, they're more symptomatic, they have a higher degree of nausea and vomiting. And also, as we talked to at the very beginning The patients are dissatisfied with current medical therapy that we have, and so they have to look out for other things, and that's how they're resorting to marijuana. Now, hopefully in the future, Brian, uh, uh, as the FDA reviews pharmaceutical studies, there are other medicines that are being looked into for gastroparesis, and maybe these are a couple years away, but at the present time, this is something the patients are doing. And I think it makes us more cognizant. Uh, I feel after writing this paper, um, I can talk to the patient a little bit more freely about the marijuana they're using. If they're using CBD, I now talk to them about how they're using it, how often, what sort of form they're using. Personally, I try not to be judgmental unless I feel they might be crossing over to the cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, where I might then suggest hey, let's try stopping it for a little while for several weeks and see how your symptoms do to see if they actually improve or worsen, depending on how you think this agent is being, what it's being used for.
0: So this is perfect, Henry. Many of our listeners will want to know, when you talk to your patients about cannabis use, do you encourage one form over the other, or do you suggest maybe using oils or vaping and trying to avoid smoking? What do you tell your patients?
1: Uh, That's an interesting question because actually in Pennsylvania, we're we're approved for now uh, medical use of marijuana. And actually, I'm trying to thinking about going myself through the credentialing to get this done. uh, I I personally let the patient uh, make their own judgment as to what what they're using. If the patient feels like it's helping them, and some of the patients that I interviewed for this particular paper, this was the only thing that can get them through the day. This was the only thing that could uh, have them be able to eat. So uh, I try not to be too judgmental with the patient. I do let them know there's another other side uh, where sometimes we're using too much might actually uh, make their symptoms worse. I mentioned earlier that THC can actually delay stomach emptying. So we're on kind of a fine tooth comb here. where the patients perceive it as helping their symptoms, but on the other hand, as physicians, we have to be worried about some of the side effects that it, there is a possibility it could delay stomach emptying, can make the symptoms worse. And there's some recent literature that's coming out that this can be associated with anxiety and paranoid states uh, mm-hmm. using uh, too much marijuana. So I think we have to be aware of both the pros of this, this agent as well as some of the Side effects that are appearing in the literature.
0: Henry, anyway, that's great. So you've got these really intriguing results, and for our listeners who haven't quite read this article, it's really fascinating and so well written. Uh, where do you go from here? What's your next step?
1: What we're talking about in our research group is to actually uh, two things. One is to look at Marinol as a or Drabinol for uh, therapy uh, for. Uh, nausea and vomiting and gastroparesis, more as a pharmaceutical study. And and also, somewhere along the line, someone's going to try this on a maybe a placebo-controlled therapy for gastroparesis, maybe uh, some sort of, if they could, give it in, in a blinded-type fashion. I think people have to figure out how to do that. That might be through oils or something else. But I think they're setting the stage to find out how are the benefits Do they outweigh the risks of this particular medicine? All this is going to be done at the same time as we have more pharmaceutical studies being delivered to us, to our regime, to be able to use, as well as other surgical therapies as we're trying to dissect out whether they might be helpful or not in our patients with gastroparesis.
0: Henry, this has been a really wonderful conversation. We can't thank you enough. Any last thoughts for our listeners?
1: Well, I think we have to. I view it as I'm trying to be the not only the patient's physician but somewhat their advocate to trying to help uh, help them get through their ordeal. And I try to tell them that you know gastroparesis is a difficult syndrome to treat or disorder to treat, and uh, we often have to take a multi-prong attack. In the past, we've been using prokinetics and antiemetics. Now we have to realize the patients are on their own finding other antiemetics to use, and we just have to be aware of of what they might be using and uh, hopefully the patients can be up front with us.
0: Okay, Henry, thanks so much. We've learned an awful lot here today, and I think you've got uh, some great ideas for us to help us learn even more in the future. So on behalf of our listeners, thank you again. We really appreciate this.
1: Sure, thanks for inviting me, Brian.